Propaniacs. Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. The Propaniacs are making continual left turns around the track that is King of the Hill Season 2, Episode 21, Life in the Fast Lane, Bobby's Saga. I'm Melton McManerberry. And the person you didn't hear from just now is the co-founder and co-creator of this podcast, my friend, Daisy Durndle. Because I've got some bad news for you, fellow Propaniacs. Daisy has gone on indefinite hiatus as Propaniacs co-host. I know, I know. It stinks. No hard feelings or anything. She's just gotten a little busy and had to cut something out. But she has given me her blessing to keep on keeping on in whatever format I choose. And it's been a tough decision because obviously Propaniacs was better with Daisy Durnell than it would be without. At the same time, I enjoy doing this podcast. King of the Hill is still my favorite show and I love talking about it. So I'd like to keep going. So I'm going to give it a shot as a solo project. I'll admit I'm not sure how it's going to work, but I do think it's worth a try. I mean, my other podcast, Nashville Anthems, has gotten me comfortable talking to an empty room like this. But I have to admit, I don't know how well that format will translate to King of the Hill commentary. Uh, But, you know, who knows where we'll go from here. Maybe a co-host, maybe some guest co-hosts. I'm going to be figuring some of this out as we go along. And I do hope it goes without saying that Daisy and I are still very much in touch. And obviously, she is welcome back to this podcast if and when she is ready. But enough background and build up. You faithful listeners are great. And I, and I know Daisy, really appreciate you. And I know that you don't tune into this podcast to hear a podcast that's all about the podcast itself. And there are plenty of those. You tune in because you love King of the Hill. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's go there. This episode starts with a cold open because Boomhauer and a police officer are doing some street racing. This police officer kind of abuses his authority by street racing Boomhauer and toying with him by pulling him over after Boomhauer bests him in this race and then turning around and busting his taillight for no reason. It does kind of remind me of the park ranger in the Order of the Straight Arrow, if you remember him and his, but it's probably not good for them, power trip. By the way, Milton's wife, for some reason, that line has always stuck with her from that episode, and it manages to come up in our conversation from time to time. There's a nice touch in this scene as the cop puts his hat on before exiting his car. I like that. Little things that King of the Hill animators do. They don't really have to do. They add to the show's realism. I'm going to have to admit here that I had to Google the Lamaze method that Boomhauer references. I invite you to do the same. But I have a big question. It goes back to all these questions that I have about the identity of Arlen itself, the geography, the character of that little town. Arlen is big enough for a NASCAR race. NASCAR is coming to town. In the late 90s, NASCAR was a big deal. I don't understand this small town or large town or whatever it is. And by the way, it's not like they're in Dallas or Fort Worth or some large city. No, this is the Arlen Speedway they go to, as we'll see here in a little bit. I don't know, listeners. I never have figured out exactly what is going on with Arlen. Maybe they take some liberties with it. Well, the first scene proper after the opening credits takes place in the driveway as the guys are getting Boomhauer's car ready for this race that he signed up, this official race that he signed up with. The winner getting to drive the pace car at the NASCAR event. So there is a King of the Hill trope here, and that's that cavalier attitude about safety that we see from time to time as Dale lights his cigarette from the flaming carburetor under the hood. It's a nice touch in that, too, as Dale 
takes the time to turn his hat around before leaning over the flame so he doesn't burn the middle of his hat. Lights a cigarette, pulls his head back up, and then hat that he's always wearing, he whips it back around so the bill's in the front. Poor Bill in this scene in a couple of different ways. You remember Bill couldn't get out of the car window, which is something that race car drivers do and, and NASCAR drivers do. It's kind of something they're known for, like Dukes of Hazard style, getting in and out through the window of the car without opening the door. There are no doors in race cars. So he's too big to get out the window. And then adding insult to injury, another poor Bill as he relates a story from his childhood where the girls in high school laughed at Bill's corrective shoes. Poor Bill. This scene references a pop culture figure of the time, and that would be race car driver and NASCAR driver Jeff Gordon. Now, Jeff Gordon, at the time of this recording, I think has been retired for a few years, but he was a very big deal in NASCAR for a long time. Certainly in May of 1998, when this episode aired, uh, he was the big deal, and he he was in his prime at that time. He was a polarizing figure in NASCAR. He represented kind of a new generation, new technology, etc. He was quite unpopular among what you might think of as like old guard and the and the more conservative fans. Because he represented these changes, he was very popular among younger, newer fans for those perhaps same reasons. Jeff Gordon pushed against NASCAR's box of rolling one's sleeves up and getting greasy, being tough, etc. that it was kind of known for, or at least that was its own mythology, let's put it that way. He was Dale Earnhardt's rival and considered his polar opposite. Dale Earnhardt embodied that mythology, whereas Jeff Gordon, as I said, he was kind of perceived as the polar opposite of that and seen as someone who kind of a pretty boy if you will never really got his hands dirty now i don't know how true any of this is probably not very but that was certainly the mythology and that was what people were saying at the time and i remember this firsthand i'm kind of just giving you my firsthand memory of this i remember these things happening i just remember what the pop pop culture was saying born raised here in the deep south as i was this was something people talked about but the guys meaning Hank and Bill and Dale and Boomhauer, the guys are definitely on the Dale Earnhardt side of this divide, not on the Jeff Gordon side. They see Jeff Gordon as representing the generation that doesn't have to work as hard and is used to these handouts. So naturally, they would see him as an enemy, and moreover, as we're about to see, a bad influence, just kind of a not only someone to root against, but actually someone who's ruining uh, maybe NASCAR, but something wider about the culture. So enter Bobby right on cue with this blank check. Bobby just assuming that his dad will just sign a check for him to buy, I think it was a bicycle. And Hank, of course, is immediately upset by that. He, he sees Bobby as expecting handouts in a way that he perceived Jeff Gordon as getting handouts. So once again, King of the Hill treats this debate in a way that shows... You know what? It's not that simple. On the one hand, it is clear that Bobby doesn't understand the value of a dollar when he just you know, hands Hank this blank check without giving a second thought. I mean, think that is true. Hank accuses him of that, and I think Hank has a point here. On the other hand, Hank, to the guys, praises Cotton's tough love as a counterexample or like a way to raise kids to appreciate the value of a dollar. But the story he tells shows us that all Cotton did was just unload a bad car on his son and then make his son pay for it. That sounds less like tough love and more like abuse or just taking advantage of someone. So maybe there is a happy medium here. Let's see where the episode takes us. I love and have always remembered Bobby's line. When Hank accuses him of acting like Jeff Gordon, Bobby says, I guess, in the eyes of the guys, a reply that couldn't have been less appropriate. He says, I like Jeff Gordon. He's handsome. 
On to the kitchen, where Peggy and Luann are sitting talking. They're talking about Jeff Gordon. They are firmly on the Gordon side of this Dale Earnhardt-Jeff Gordon divide and all that it represents to this culture in this, this episode. Luann calls Jeff Gordon the world's fastest Christian, which shows a, quite a narrow view of the world. There's a lot in that phrase. First of all, the world's fastest. Well, the NASCAR was actually a pretty small world, even at the t- especially at the time, still to an extent, but especially at the time, it was pretty confined to the southeastern United States, which is by no means the world. The, the word fastest, the idea that he's the fastest, leaves out uh, a lot of the racing circuits that run much faster than NASCAR does. Formula One would be the prime example of that. Formula One is a, essentially a European racing circuit, so it's not going to be on Luann's radar, but it, in fact it's not even in her world as she frames this description. And finally, as a Christian. So that word Christian there and her thought about what it takes to be one and what makes Jeff Gordon the world's fastest, it kind of feeds back probably and possibly into... A, a narrow worldview that kind of thinks of Christianity as the Bible Belt in the southeastern United States, when, in fact, as I mentioned, everyone in Formula One is rides faster than the fastest person in NASCAR. Their cars are just faster. And presumably, at least some of the races in that circuit at the time were Christians. So we don't. I guess I don't know. I can't say that for sure. But I can say that Luann doesn't seem even to have thought about that. And that is a King of the Hill kind of thing. Just a narrow worldview, what Daisy would have called smally minded when she was making fun of the way uh, that I used the word smally incorrectly in one of our past episodes. So Hank wants to indoctrinate Bobby into the American dream of hard work yielding financial success. And Bobby looks willing to try, but how might the real world bump up against Hank's ideals? And we shall see as we continue through the episode. Next thing takes place in the front yard. I love how Bobby has achieved his dream with the single dollar that Hank gave him in the last scene. Bobby's dream? A burrito. I can get on board with that dream, Bobby. A nurturing Peggy shows up. We have talked previously about how Peggy has a nurturing instinct that that comes out. We saw it in a major way in Husky Bobby. So nurturing Peggy shows up in this one. And it's also similar also to Plastic White Female. Peggy wants to coddle Bobby a little too much, whereas Hank wants to thrust too much adulthood on him. Again, no happy medium between those two. Where's common sense in that, right? Uh, but we have to acknowledge this great Hank line. Bobby, I know we've never talked about this, but one day I'm going to die. And when that happens, then you can go to cooking school. Thank you, Hank. We move now to Arlen Speedway. Because Hank is taking Bobby there. It's kind of a lesson on manhood uh, to get him away from uh, Peggy's feminine influence. This kind of reminds me of uh, Hank's got the willies. Hank took Bobby to the golf course for a similar reason. Bobby gets there and he's not entranced by the cars or the cool sounds or the scantily clad women. Bobby's eye immediately goes to what? The velvet rope that surrounds the pace car and his appreciation of that velvet rope more than the pace car was just a perfect example of the disconnect between Bobby and Hank. So a kid with what sounds like a can-do attitude shows up, kid holding the drink tray and the stage is set. The kid says that line you hear from time to time, he says I can rest when I'm dead and in that phrase I think lies exactly the nuance that this episode is living in because there is value to a mentality like that. I mean, laziness is real, and sometimes we need to be reminded that work is work, and that if it were about having fun or self-actualization, they wouldn't have to pay us to do it. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Bobby would benefit from more motivation to work. But there's also a real danger in a statement like that. 
If you're someone who is given to overdoing things, to working too long or too hard, or worse, you're abusing people working for you but not giving them opportunities for rest and balance, then, you know, a phrase like, I can rest when I'm dead, is just reinforcing some bad habits with you. So there are two sides to this, and there are two ways to get this idea wrong. To want to oversell the truth in the statement, but also to want to oversell the lie in the statement. So I appreciate that King of the Hill leaves this open, at least at this point. It leaves it open which camp this kid and Jimmy Wichard and really the whole episode fall in. Speaking of, Jimmy Wichard mentioned his name, but we haven't seen him yet, but we see him now. Because this is the first appearance in this episode, and I think in the whole series of a character who shows up from time to time, that would be Jimmy Wichard. Jimmy Wichard is on the nose voiced by versatile King of the Hill sideman David Herman. You would know potentially David Herman as the voice of Twig Boy from the pilot and from Junkie Business. David Herman also voices Buckley, Luann's dim-witted boyfriend, and perhaps most famously, you might know him from outside of the King of the Hill universe, but inside the Mike Judge universe, he played Michael Bolton in the movie Office Space. So Jimmy is a believable part of this world, this King of the Hill world. He's a guy with obvious mental disabilities that are never really addressed. He's just kind of there in this Arlen world doing his thing. And Jimmy's big thing is that he's kind of defensive and territorial about everything in his immediate world. So Hank doesn't catch any of this, but reads Jimmy through his own idealistic American dream-loving lens and does not catch the danger that his son you know, would be in by working for this man. And he does, in fact, get Bobby employed by Jimmy Witcher. So a couple scenes later, we end up at Arlen Speedway again, and Bobby is doing his job. He is a drink boy, a snack boy. He's taking a tray of drinks and snacks around to the spectators at Arlen Speedway. So, you know, how do we read Bobby's first day struggles? Did you think about that and see that as you watched this episode? It's it's certainly hot there. As we know from Jimmy Wichard, people are hot and dry. They need something cold and wet. So it's hot. It's hard work. No question about it. It's physically demanding. He has to go up those tall steps, up and down in the hot sun. And at the same time, like some of the things that happened are th- things he could learn from. I think lessons learned quickly that he can immediately apply. So those aren't necessarily bad things, like how far to throw the peanuts and not to leave the drink tray just sitting unattended. Other things are... I don't know, things that maybe are just bad luck or maybe not that big of a deal. He got gum on his shoes, humiliating, maybe not that big of a deal. Uh, maybe something's going to happen a lot at a place like that, but you can wear some old shoes and it be okay. He trips and falls. That, you know, could have skinned his knee and that could have injured him so that, or hurt his knee. That That's bad, and he's got to under- learn and, and think about and understand and watch where he's going. So, once again, there's some nuance here. It's not like Bobby's first day struggles are just, like, insurmountable. Uh, this is a job potentially he could succeed at. At least it seems that way now. Now, he'll have to make some adjustments, but maybe he can do this if he can, you know, stand the heat. By the way, the drink tray was only $20. That's what uh, Jimmy Wichard said. It holds 20 drinks, so you're telling me the drinks are only a dollar each? That's really cheap for spectator concessions, even in 1998. Okay, now back at the concession stand a couple of scenes later. If there was any doubt before, we do see now that Bobby's situation is hopeless under Jimmy Wichard's management. 
as Hank's hardworking values come up against some real life because we see Jimmy calculating money that Bobby owes him for this or that. It seems like he's not calculating it correctly at the same time. Well, a couple of scenes later, back at Jimmy Richards' concession stand, and we're starting to see that Jimmy Richards' faculties are going to really make this an untenable situation for Bobby as he does the thing with his calculator. And it's not easy to see how Bobby is going to stand a chance of success under his management. And Hank's hardworking values now are coming up against real life. But Hank doesn't know that yet. So Bobby meets him in the evening at the patio after a long, hard day's work. And I think this is the first appearance of Hank's guitar, Betsy, since Hank's got the willies, maybe, way back in season one. Nice touch here in the sound effects department. There's some faint sounds of Hank's acoustic guitar being moved around when he puts it on the table. And there's a certain sound that an acoustic guitar makes when you kind of move it. And you can hear that sound. A little, little nice touch of realism there. To give the episode some verisimilitude, if you will. So Hank doesn't know the reality, and he's just not, at this point, willing to give up on this lesson that he's trying to teach Bobby. But his lesson seems to miss the point somehow. So Bobby will do anything to please his father. We've seen that time and time again. So even in trying to follow Hank's ideals, all Bobby's really trying to do is to imitate his father. The deeper lesson here is meaningless to Bobby. And again, there is some truth to what Hank is saying. I mean, I certainly work with people who seriously don't get that their salaries are, in fact, payment for work, not something they're entitled to by default. And maybe Bobby needed to understand that a little bit better. But Hank is laying it on pretty thick here and just has no interest in what reality might be like and what sort of downside there might be in all this for Bobby. Fast forward a few scenes and we are on pit road. It's not poor Bill this time, it's poor Dale. Poor Dale, he has to hold a bucket of sand (laughs) during the pit stop. Love that. Gotta keep Dale out of it somehow. It keeps his hands busy. Over the concession stand, Bobby then is asked to put hot dog suit on and be like the hot dog mascot. And this is a humiliation for Bobby. I'm guessing that Hank, from the pep talk he gives Bobby, never had to wear one of these for his first job at Jeans West. But Bobby wears one now and is made the laughing stock of all the spectators. So the job is difficult, not just difficult, probably impossible, and it's certainly humiliating. There's a good contrast here between the inspiration Hank draws from Bobby's success and the crowd's mockery of Bobby in this hot dog suit. Hank just kind of doesn't get it, and he's blinded by his idealism uh, about hard work. So I'm going to give a little confession here. I didn't see why wearing the hot dog suit was that big of a deal, except that it probably smelled horrible and I wouldn't have wanted to wear it for that reason. But honestly, I don't know, as a job, didn't seem like it was that terrible, but the crowd's reaction to Bobby you know, gives the lie to what I'm saying. It, Whatever I think about the hot dog suit, the crowd certainly is mocking Bobby and his humiliation here is complete. And Bobby's so sad out there. He's singing a happy tune just like his dad told him to do when the going got tough, but it's kind of not working. Well, in the backyard now, by the way, again, where is Arlen? It's broad daylight at 5.30 a.m. We saw this in Jumping Crack Bass. Yeah, the signs are all there for Hank now about the bad situation that Bobby is in, but he only hears what he wants to hear. We're back in Arlen Speedway. Where did the 62,427 people come from that the announcer announces are in attendance are there that many people in Arlen? I mean, do they come from Dallas or whatever big city is nearest? What is going on here, folks? Well, over in the pace car area, the guy's hero, Dale Earnhardt, shows up. This is a real voice cameo by Dale Earnhardt. And what does Dale Earnhardt comment on? You guessed it. Not the pace car. 
the Velvet Road, the same thing that Bobby commented on. Now Hank's box is being pushed against by his very hero. Although Hank seems unaware of that fact or oblivious to it and is kind of in no way learning any lesson here or interested or thinking about giving Bobby any credit for actually being the one who's aligned with Dale Earnhardt, not himself. But we've seen that a lot in this episode. Hank certainly has his blinders on. You know, I think we saw in Husky Bobby, that was an episode where Hank seemed to change, or the show's relationship to Hank seemed to change such that Hank was right in that episode. But if you remember, it was maybe not quite that simple. But it does seem like the show makes a pivot over time, and that may have been kind of the first bit of it. So that Hank becomes a more sympathetic figure over time, and you as the viewer maybe relate to him more and and see his point of view more. But here's a counterexample of that. Hank has just got this all wrong. Like I said, there's truth in what he's saying to Bobby, even if it's kind of imperfect. But in its application to this episode, he's completely off the mark. Well, anyway, back at Arlen Speedway, it's the day of the big race. It's a nice touch here as they show the line getting into the women's restroom, you know, being long, and there is no line at all going to the men's restroom, which is right beside it. We've all seen that in public and certainly at sporting events. Dale becomes the voice of reason here regarding Jimmy Wichard. He explains to Hank what he knows about Jimmy Wichard. I don't know how he knows it and Hank doesn't, but it starts to make maybe make the light go off in Hank's head about the actual situation here. And in the next scene, we see that happen for sure because... Jimmy puts Bobby in clear and present danger. Hank witnesses that happening, and he sees the full picture and goes absolutely ballistic. Hank runs out into the track because he's just like completely lost his mind, and his recklessness wrecks, you guessed it, Jeff Gordon. I love the nice touch as he kind of spun out, and you know, presumably from inside the car, Jeff Gordon himself, you know, you heard a voice go, Daddy! <laughs> that was pretty good. Hank literally kicks Jimmy's butt for endangering his son. But the truth is, Hank should probably kick his own because... Hank put Bobby in this situation and, you know, arguably because of Jimmy's disabilities or lack of mental faculty at any rate, arguably Hank is more to blame than Jimmy is. Well, as the episode resolves, Hank goes and meets Bobby in his room. Uh, Hank's, what you doing? Playing a video game? Betrays that he is still not really taking an interest in Bobby's actual life. Right? He just kind of walks in and assumes he's playing a video game. It you know, wouldn't have taken much to see that Bobby was actually reading a book. And I do wonder what Bobby was reading. But Bobby reiterates what's clear here in his conversation with Hank, that he just wants to please his dad. But it's funny how he betrays that he didn't really learn any lessons about the value of a dollar from this episode. Because he says, I was happy before when you just bought all the stuff around here. And there was, what? No money involved. Bobby still doesn't get it. And I like that. Hank learned a lesson imperfectly. Bobby kind of didn't learn a lesson at all. And that's how life works. It's never really buttoned up that cleanly. And this episode wasn't either. So that is the end of this episode. It's time for Goober Smooches. I'm going to give this episode five Goober Smooches out of ten. I think that's a pretty average episode. Definitely had its good points, its bad points, its in-between points. And that's why I say it is an average episode. Well, I see the checkered flag waving, so that means it's time to park this episode. Join me in two weeks as Peggy explores feminism. Or does she? In Peggy's Turtle Song. Until then, you can find me on Instagram or email me at meltonmcmainerberry at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out my other podcast, Nashville Anthems, dissecting 80s and 90s country music. Bye for now.